Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I cannot blame them. After all, one doesn't need a telescopic sight to shoot boar and bear, so that when they came on me watching the terrace at a range of 550 yards, it was natural enough that they should jump to conclusions. And they behaved, I think, with discretion. I am not an obvious anarchist or fanatic, and I don't look as if I took any interest in politics. I might perhaps have sat for an agricultural constituency in the south of England, but that hardly counts as politics. I carried a British passport, and if I had been caught walking up to the house instead of watching it, I should probably have been asked to lunch. It was a difficult problem for angry men to solve in an afternoon. You are a difficult problem. We have a problem to solve. Welcome the Curiously Specific Book Club, the podcast that's curiously specific about dates and locations in well-known books. Every episode, we take a book out for a walk into the wild to see if the world of fiction matches up with the real world. I should also add that we are the Radio Times podcast pick of the week. Yes, indeed. Thank you, David Hepworth. So we're going to add that to our intro from now on. (laughs) I guess we should. I'm Lloyd Shepard. I'm a digital producer and writer. I'm Tim Wright. I'm a digital writer and a producer of immersive fiction. And you join us from a secret location. Yes, we're not doing it from the studio. We're not doing it in the bunker beneath Tim's house, which is where we normally record the studio bits of this podcast. No. We are in a secret location in Dorset. We're hiding. We're hiding from a a bunch of German secret agents. Who are out to get us. We're a couple of rogue males, in fact. Rogue male. Rogue Mail by Geoffrey Household is the book that we are surveying. Published in 1939 and an absolute stone-cold classic of the thriller genre and the sub-genre of the running man genre. So uh, we're, we're doing a trilogy of running man books, right? Well, yes, and, and sort of general paranoia about secret agents embedded in our country everywhere we look. Particularly German ones. Yes. Our hero, our unnamed hero, starts the book. Is he unnamed? He's, unnamed, st- in the well, first, he's unnamed in the first book. Well, yeah, I'm going to upset you about that I later. Know, I know, he's unnamed in the first book. 
He starts the book uh, taking a pot shot at a, a totalitarian leader somewhere in eastern central Europe. Yes. Uh, and an unknown date, but it's pretty obvious. Well, you, you, I think you're supposed to take the hint that the leader is Adolf Hitler, but I think you've got things to say about that later on. Possibly. He then escapes from that attempted assassination. He gets caught up by the Gestapo. Or yeah, he gets away from the Gestapo he escapes. After, after they tore his, all his fingernails and out. And he gets all the way back to England. And then uh, they chase him to England. Yes. And he goes to ground in a Holloway in Dorset. We'll come on to Holloways, we'll come on to Dorset. Yes, he makes this mad decision that the best thing he can do is to disappear and literally bury himself into the landscape. Yes. And hide for months there like a survivalist. Yes. So Until attention has died down and they give up on him. Yes. Because he feels so pursued by them. Yeah. And, and, and is pursued. Or he's also them. being pursued by the British police, right? So there's, you know, plot spoilers in this episode, as usual. Yep. If you've not read the book, turn it off now and go and read it. But if you have read the book, you know that the British police are chasing him as well because he has killed a man in London. Yes. And one of the puzzles of this book has always been, A, well, it's got some great nature writing in it, actually, which is why nature writers like Robert McFarlane are big fans of it. Yeah. It's also got a slight whiff of Hemingway in its tense sort of prose. Terse. Yeah, so I think a lot of other writers admire it for that. But the other thing is that the puzzle of where does he actually dig in his little hidey hole yep. in all these different hollowways of Dorset, there are a lot of contending arguments. For yes, where it might you mentioned be. Robert McFarlane, is probably the most famous writer who's tried to find this hiding place. We have things to say about that, don't we? Well, we are recording right now from our candidate of the secret Holloway. And we don't think it's a candidate that anyone has previously mentioned. No. And we think it's definitely the right one. So if you support us on Patreon for £2, you can get part two of this podcast straight away. And we will reveal our secret lair. Yeah. Well, before we get there, we should probably uh, start off in London, right? Yes, I think we've got to, basically, we've got to land. We've got to get off a, we've got to a, get a steamer boat. in Wandsworth. We're getting off a boat on the south shore of the Thames at Wandsworth. Yeah. And then we're making our way across the river to the Hurlingham Club. Bang, bang. Where the chase begins. There were bangings and tramplings and then silence. After a while, my tank settled over to port, and I assumed that we were resting on the Wandsworth mud. Another note was dropped through the manhole, accompanied by a pair of formidably dark glasses wrapped in brown paper. Don't go out through the gates. There's a chap watching I don't like the look of. The dinghy is under the starboard quarter. As soon as she floats, I'll give you a knock, and you beat it, quick. Row across to the public steps by Hurlingham East Wall, I'll take the boat back later. Best of luck. Best of luck. Best of luck. So settle down in the Wandsworth mud. We can see the Wandsworth mud. We can. From where we're sitting, we're sitting on the Fulham mud. Well, the Hurlingham mud. The Hurlingham mud. We are sitting under the east wall of the Hurlingham Club, surrounded by geese and ducks. All the geese have decided that we're going to give them some food, haven't they? They have. And they now a bit they're getting closer and closer. It's like a scene from the birds. I think the birds would have been even more threatening if she put geese in them. This is it. We've come here because our hero has somehow got up the River Thames on a steamer. Uh, <laughs> and uh, ah, I think I can answer that though. Well, we couldn't. I couldn't work it out because he he comes in from Germany, yeah, across the North Sea, up the Thames, 
Yeah. And all the way to Wandsworth, hiding in this tank on this uh, steamer. But I couldn't work out how he got up the river with a, in a, on a steamer with a huge chimney. Because if you were delivering up river, you would normally unload onto a barge, right? And the barge would go under the low, because the bridges are very low between That's right. here and the city. Mm-hmm. So how did they do that? Well, I have one explanation. Right. But I think there's still some question marks. Okay. But I refer you to the Wandsworth and District Gas Company. Okay. Which was a maker and distributor of coal gas in southwest London from 1834 until 1949. Very good, so banging our period. The Wandsworth Gas Works was on the Surrey bank of the River Thames near Wandsworth Bridge and supplied Wandsworth Putney and part of Battersea. Now, where does it get its coal gas from? It gets it from coal. Where does it get the coal from? Mm-hmm. Now, as you're saying, you'd think they'd just put it onto lighters and bring it up from... From yeah. Tower Bridge yeah. or Thames Pool, whatever, right? But no, they had a fleet of coastal colliers. But look, here's a picture of one going under the bridge at the Yule in 1926 with her wheelhouse and mast lowered to pass under London Bridge. Okay. But none of them went to Germany. That's what I was going to say. You wouldn't sail across the North Sea in a coastal collier. So that's a bit of a problem, isn't it? It is a bit. Because even if it was one of these... Here's the Wandle steaming up the Thames in 1932. Well, there you go. So, look, I'm, I think the Wandle is the candidate. Yes. I think Household saw that and thought, ah... Oh. That must have come from <laughs> Hamburg. <laughs> what does work, though, of course, is we, we've come over the river from the uh, Wandsworth side. Now, there are a couple of wharves, or there were a couple of wharves, out either side of the river Wandle. Yeah, which empties out into the Thames here. I'm looking at it right now. So it's quite plausible that there was a ship anchored up or, or, or tied up at the at the wharves that then settled down on the mud as the tide went out. Yes. That all works. It's also quite plausible that he rowed across in a dinghy. Yes. And I'm looking up at the uh, the brick wall of the Herningham Club. Yes, yeah, so this we, is Broomhouse This wharf? is Broomhouse Dock. So yeah. Broomhouse Dock has been here a long, long time. It was a medieval dock. Right. So, but he does talk about stairs, doesn't he? He talks about the public steps. The public steps uh, at the east wall of the Hurlingham. Now, there are no steps here now, but I think if the east wall began there, where the gate is now, yeah, you can quite imagine that there would have been steps. There up would have here. been steps down. Yeah. Well, yeah. you were telling me that actually the Hurlingham Club extended to the east side. Yeah, of this but it did. Dock. It wasn't walled in. The, the road still went down the middle. Right. Public so, access. But the Hurlingham Club. Now, the Hurlingham Club's quite interesting in itself you've I've, been there I've been there I went to a party there hey. uh, back did you in play the, polo back in the day it is the centre of polo it's the world centre of polo it's where polo rules were first codified oh was the it the Hur- club yeah her polo was first played at the club in 1874 okay. in the early 1900s ballooning was a popular sport what at the club Ballooning? Ballooning, yeah. Uh, and a pipe with the relevant gas was installed between the club and the local gas works at Sands End, which are just over there. Okay. So they had a special gas line in to inflate their balloons. <laughs> but that's not why it was founded. It was founded originally as a shooting club. Well, that not that why her household would be drawn to it? Exactly. And why the, why the hero would be drawn to it? He'd know yeah. all about it, right? Know all about guns. Because he's a, he's a gunman. He's a gunman. Yes. So we're giving him good marks. Good marks for this, I, th- I would say. I think he'd stick out like a sore thumb in Hurlingham, though, wouldn't he? Coming across there with his wonky eye, his dark glasses. Well, it's night time, isn't it? His smelly, he comes across clothes. at night time. 
I think he'd be... He'd, he'd, and he goes from here, right, up to Cromwell Road? He's got to hightail it to Cromwell Road. So Which that's is what about, we've got to what, do. two miles that way? Without getting noticed. Without getting noticed. You first. OK. Let's, should we try that? Yeah. I'll the give birds you, have all gone now. I'll give you a ten-minute head start. <laughs> <laughs> it's a manhunt. What did you read in Oxford? English literature. In, in which you took a first? Yes. What were your other interests there? Drama, politics, sport? I'm afraid none whatever. I've never had much interest in sport. Uh, politics, I've gone my own way. Which never seems to be anybody else's. <laughs> <laughs> and um, other interests, I think one could say the chief interest, beyond doing a little work, was punting on the river with girls. Well, admirable. Couldn't be better. What did you want to be? I had no idea. The Atlantic made a discovery when in the early spring of 1936 the editor received a long short story from an unknown Englishman with the most inviting name, Geoffrey Household. The Salvation of Pisco Cathbar was its title and the story itself was so exceptional that it was accorded the lead position in the June issue. The Atlantic is confident that its readers will find the new serial, Rogue Mail, a novel of great originality, by way of explanation, the author has appended the following note to his title page. The behaviour of a rogue may fairly be described as individual, separation from its fellows appearing to increase both cunning and ferocity. These solitary beasts, exasperated by chronic pain or widowhood, are occasionally found among all the larger carnivores and griminivorks, and are generally males, though in the case of hippopotami, the wanton viciousness of old cows is not to be disregarded. Ooh. <laughs> so that is how the Atlantic Monthly introduced its serialisation of Rogue Mail in September 1939. September 1930. That's an unfortunate time to publish your book, is it not? Uh, a fortunate time to publish a book about German spies in England, yes. Uh, and certainly in terms of getting attention. Yeah. But that's how it describes So Geoffrey Household at that point had already had quite a life, I would say. So Geoffrey Household, <laughs> yes. born 1900. So he was just too young to be in World War One, He went to Clifton School. He went to private school. His, yeah. his father was a, a barrister who then became the Secretary of Education for Gloucestershire. It was rather odd. Right. He went to Magdalen, yeah. and his Magdalen connection got him a job at the Ottoman Bank in Bucharest. Well, I think it was basically one of his college friend's dad who took him on, as yeah. it were. Well, the Michael Barber entry in the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography is very good, actually. Yeah. He says brilliantly, Bucharest was the making of household. Thanks to the very favourable exchange rate, he could live like a prince on £400 a year. The callow former public schoolboy became a discriminating hedonist, well-versed in the pleasures of the table and the bed. Ding dong. <laughs> he's quite a one, because after he's been at the Bank of Romania for four years... Mm -hmm. He then goes to Spain and starts selling bananas. For fifes. And then that doesn't supposedly go well, so that in 1929 he goes to the US mm -hmm. and starts writing children's encyclopedias and radio plays and stuff. Mm -hmm. And he's a travelling salesman for, for printer ink. Yes. As well, which then he goes all over Europe, the Middle East, South America. So he doesn't really 
start writing till the late 30s. Well, 1935, he gets an advance to the Atlantic Monthly for... Uh, because of the short story he'd sent them. Yeah. And that's what he used to start writing his uh, first novel, The Third Hour. Now, I'm going to say something here that isn't t- mentioned in any of this, but as somebody who went to Cambridge University, mm. if you met somebody who you'd been to university with who said, oh, yes, well, I met someone, and they said I ought to uh, work in Romania for a bit for them, and then I got a bit bored with that, so I went to Spain and I started selling bananas. Yeah. And then that didn't work out for me, so I went to the United States and worked for a children's encyclopedia company. Yeah. Do you know what I think they were? Well, I, I think know. they were a spy. I think they were. <laughs> I think they without a doubt. You think they were a spy? Um, maybe he was a spy. He was. Well, of course, a, he says he, well, he did work for intelligence. Well, during he's the war, immediately right? recruited by British intelligence during the Second World War and goes back to Romania. Yeah, basically to reactivate his networks. Yes. Yeah, and he was also uh, in the Middle East. Yes. Now, according to Wikipedia, he wrote 28 novels. According to the website about him that his family run, he wrote 37 novels. A lot of books. He did write a lot of books. Um, But not a lot of thrillers. He's into sci-fi. He's like sci-fi, and he also likes kind of like grand historical fiction. He describes himself as a sort of a bastard by Stevenson out of Conrad. Yes. He says, style is enormously important to me, and I do try to develop my hero as a human being in trouble. His protagonist in Rogue Mail is a famous big game hunter. He's recognised in London, isn't he, by people who are like, oh, hello. He is, but he's, never, but he's never named, is he? He's never named in that one. No. But uh, I, So I was wondering, is there a real-life role model for this? Right. So I looked up Big Game Hunters. Yes, you would. There's a great Wikipedia page about this. Yeah. But, but the person I found is Philip Hope Percival, 1886 to 1966. So he's, he's not bad. Yeah. But the important thing about him is that he assisted in a lion hunt for Theodore Roosevelt... And then he was a, one of the highest paid hunters of his day in the 20s and 30s. And his clients included Baron Rothschild, <laughs> the Duke and Duchess of Connaught, Gary Cooper, George Eastman of Eastman Kodak, and arguably the most famous Ernest Hemingway, who used Percival as the inspiration for the character Pop in Green Hills of Africa. Well, Now, if I think about the sort of terse prose of this book, yeah. and I think about the, slight, the, the sort of slight macho-ness of survival and guns and hard drinking and yep. uh, all that kind of stuff, I would say that Hemingway is a role model. And that book came out in 1935. Yep. So I think he's read Green Hills of Raf- Africa. Yep. And if you notice in that book, it, the, four, the title of the four chapters or p- four parts of Green Hills of Africa called... Pursuit and Conversation, Pursuit Remembered, Pursuit and Failure, and Pursuit as Happiness. So if you're writing a pursuit novel, Mm -hmm. it's not a bad reference, is it? No, it's good. Very good. So he did write a sequel to Rogue Mail, right? He did, called called, uh, Rogue Justice. Which has one, I would find, I've not read it, you told me all about it, it has one very great disappointment. it's It's a severe disappointment. Oh, is it? It's not as good. It's a slightly mad story about how this uh, protagonist goes back into Europe during World War II to attempt to kill Hitler. Right. And he definitely says Hitler this time. Yeah. He reveals his own name. He reveals his whole family background of his father was British, his mother was Austrian. He reveals the name of his girlfriend who's executed and how she's executed. And it reveals that his name is revealed as 
Raymond Ingleroom. Yeah. Ingleroom. I'm not happy with Raymond. Raymond. Raymond doesn't sound a very threatening name to me. It's a shame about Ray. <laughs> well, I like the idea that Major Quive Smith, who is the, the, the German senior German spy who's out to get him, Yeah. I like him wandering around here going, Raymond! <laughs> Raymond! Can you hear me, Raymond? Raymond, we know you're in here. Raymond! After my supper, I took a bus to Cornwall Road and put up at one of those hotels designed for gentlewomen in moderately distressed circumstances. The porter didn't much care about taking me in, but fortunately I had a couple of pound notes and they had a room with a private bath. Their water, thank God, was hot. Hot water and a lot of meat. So he's, he's in hot water metaphorically and literally. Uh, yes, very good. So he's walked up from the river, Herdium Club. He stopped at the King's Road for a grill. A mixed grill, yeah, of meat and meat and meat, and then he's taken a bus up here to here, Cromwell Road, yeah, between Kensington and Earl's Court. Yes, he's found a hotel. Well, I think this is a good area for those kinds of hotels, and we've come to. We're on Ashburn Place right now, but we got out at Gloucester Road and just walked round the back, and it, it runs parallel with. There's several roads. There's two roads that run parallel just off the Cromwell Road. And there used to be absolutely loads of hotels here. Mm-hmm. When we came out of Gloucester Road, we noticed Bailey's Hotel, did we not? We did. Which is a very posh one. I noticed that in britishhistory.ac.uk, it says Bailey's Hotel provided a nucleus for a growing number of hotels in the vicinity, occupying converted houses. In 1914, there were 14 hotels in 18 houses, all in Cromwell Road and Harrington Gardens. In 1929, a grant in aid was sought because the conditions in this parish have changed considerably in the past 12 years, and instead of the houses being occupied by individual householders, they are now mainly used as hotels and boarding houses with an ever-changing population and are converted into flats of an inexpensive nature. Mm. We're surrounded by huge hotels here, aren't we? Well, we're stood between the Millennium Hotel, which is a seven-storey, ugly 70s building. Yeah, and then the massive Park International. Which is 25 floors. Aren't they yeah. talking about knocking that down? I think they have been talking about... I think they've been wanting to knock it down for ages. It's not, it's not popular as a landmark. It's, it's much it's written about ugly. as a horrible thing. It's pig ugly. But all these roads down of here would have been small hotels, so it's perfect for where he would have... Well, our hero been. isn't the first uh, literary character to uh, come here. Oh, yeah. So I'm going to read you from another book. Mrs Palfrey came to the Claremont Hotel on a Sunday afternoon in January. Rain had closed in over London and her taxi sloshed along the almost deserted Cromwell Road, past one cavernous porch after another, the driver going slowly and poking his head out into the wet, for the hotel was not known to him. The discovery that he did not know had disconcerted Mrs Palfrey, for she did not know it either, and began to wonder what she was coming to. So that is from Mrs. Palfrey at the Claremont, Elizabeth Taylor's last novel. 
I love Elizabeth Taylor. I, I've never read any Elizabeth One of the Taylor. great English writers. You said to this, me, me, yeah. I should do this. You should definitely check I, her out. Yeah. And if a listener, if you've not read any Elizabeth Taylor, start with Angel and get going, because she's absolutely brilliant, and we should do her one day. This is obviously used by a lot of writers, this yeah. area. For, and this whole thing about lodgings. I found a really spectacular article on literarylondon.org called The Use of London Lodgings in Middlebrow Fiction, 1900 to 1930s. The writer of this has picked two authors to talk about. One is called Silberad, who I've never heard of. No, never heard of. Silberad's characters are reduced to life in London rooms in shared houses, but while her characters aspire to leave these settings through a deserved improvement in their condition, through wit, integrity and hard work, her attitude to these low locations was affectionate and knowledgeable. So for her... It claims here, it's interesting, Silver, her use of lodgings expresses transience, impermanence, a low period in a character's life, but also a place of safety and relative security. Nice. So that's... That's why you come here. Yeah. But the other author mentioned in this article, who I think is an influence on household, is Dornford Yates, (laughs) the thriller writer. writer. I think there's quite a lot of... The Chandos books. Have you ever read any of them? The Chandos books, which are basically Richard Chandos and colleagues, including George Hanbury and Jonathan Mansell, tackle criminals, protect the innocent, woo beautiful ladle, ladies, and hunt for treasure. Beautiful ladles? Yeah, they, look, they, they hunt for beautiful ladles. <laughs> it's a good read. So it's, a, it's a domestic setting. Yeah, and his characters spend quite a lot of time hanging around dodgy hotels. The first book is called Blind Corner. Which I like, because that's from the trip again, isn't yeah. it? Blind Corner with Trevor Reeve. Yeah. <laughs> Trevor Reeve, who's a member of the Hurlingham Club. <laughs> is he really? He really is. I can't see Trevor Reeve playing polo or shooting, well, I, does I he? I don't know. I, I played a rather posh golf course uh, a few years ago, down at Goodwood. And who should I see coming up off, off the uh, 18th hole? But Trevor Reeve. 18th hole, Trevor Reeve. 9pm, yeah. BBC One. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Alan Bennett is very good in, about Dornford Yates. He says, Sapper, Buchan, Dornford Yates, practitioners in that school of snobbery with violence that runs like a thread of good-class tweed through 20th century literature. Well, he satirised that style of literature brilliantly in 40 years on. That's right. Yeah. Is that line, is he sane? He's dangerously sane. <laughs> but like all dangerously sane men, he has at one time walked that thin line between lunacy and insanity. <laughs> I've always remembered that line. I was in it at school. That's fantastic. You're listening to the Curiously Specific Book Club, the podcast that's curiously specific about dates and locations in well-known books. If you want to listen to the second part of this podcast and find out where we're actually podcasting from, you need to support us on Patreon. For just £2 a month, you get early access to every part two of every podcast without ads. And you also get a load of show notes with all our references and links and a few videos. You also get photos and you get maps, some of them more lovely than others. You're gonna, well, the map in this one is going to be very important. So uh, I'm looking forward to seeing your map for this one and uh, basically showing people how to get to the hideaway we found. Well, there's a lovely circular walk in this one, actually. It's a bit like the, our Rebecca episode, is yeah. that you, we'll just give you a map to go on a very lovely walk. A very lovely walk and uh, with a great find halfway along it. For £5 a month, if you really love us, Radio Times Pick of the Week. Oh, you keep, you keep, keep saying If it. you really want to pay, give us some money to the Radio Times Pick of the Week winning uh, fan uh, supported by David Hepworth, 
who loves us uh, podcast. Now you're overdoing now it. Now I'm overdoing it. For £5, you can join us on our Discord server where we have, have lots of conversations with uh, like-minded people who are into their books and their locations and their history. Yes. Uh, We've been talking about Waverley novels, Scott. We not, have. Uh, and which also, is very interesting, actually, because I've never read one, so I've been, I've been getting quite well informed by our Patreon subscribers. We should also uh, thank uh, Jeff at Spyrite, who's one oh, of our, yes. one of our uh, Discord server members, yeah. who's given us quite a good few good clues as to... Uh, as to our current hideaway. So thank you, Jeff. Well, he's also he's published a fantastic letter by Jeffrey Household that shows his influences, as it were. Which we will put on our show notes. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so that's for £5. If you don't want to give us any money at all, that's fine. It's not fine, but that's fine. But you can listen to this uh, uh, with ads in a week's time where we will be revealing where we are. But can you wait a week? Can you really face the weeks not knowing exactly where we are? Uh, when you turned around there, you said, can you wait a week? I was thinking, are we going to sit here for a week? <laughs> Tim's saying you turn around because we, we are recording this uh, on a bank, quite yeah. a steep bank. I know at the in the book the tree, he spends over a month. And Tim's behind me and I'm having to turn around to him to talk to him. So my back is going to be like quite seized up by the time we finish this I one. mean, I know this guy, he lives in here in a little hole dug into the side of this Holloway did for he record a, a over a month. But did he record a podcast? He did not. But I'm not, I'm not staying here any more than a few hours. <laughs> I need a pub. Anyway, back Back to to the the podcast. podcast. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. 
Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. In the happy years between 1925 and 1930, you could talk yourself over any Western European frontier, so long as you looked respectable and explained your movements and business with a few details that could be checked. You could treat frontier police as men of decency and common sense, two virtues that they could then afford to indulge. But now, unless a traveller has some organisation, subversive or benevolent, to help him, frontiers are an efficient bar to those who find it inconvenient or impossible to show their papers. And even if a frontier be crossed without record, there isn't the remotest village where a man can live without justifying himself and his reasons for being himself. Thus Europe, for me, was a mere trap with a delayed action. Oh, that's such a good line. That's such a good line. Welcome back to our little hidey hole. We're still here, and we're they still haven't found hi- us yet. We're still hiding away. I don't think I've heard any agents out in the field. Quive Smith seems to have made himself scarce. Yes. That reading is just very characteristic of a certain strand of thriller writing that was uh, very prominent in the 1930s. Yes. You mentioned Hemingway, but... Uh, Graham Greene. We should also mention Graham Greene, A Gun for Sale, in which our, pr- our protagonist escapes to Nottingham, I think. I think he's chased around Nottingham. Yeah, around Nottingham to wear gas masks, by German agents. It's quite a good during, book, actually. During a gas mask rehearsal. Yes, that's right. Very good, very atmospheric. Yeah. But he's obviously in a fine tradition. I mean, obviously, he's influenced by John Buck and 39 yep, Steps and yep. the Hannay novels. Which is the... We, we're describing as the granddaddy of... Uh, Oh, yes. Running Man books. Yes. If this is the daddy, that's the granddaddy. Yes. Well, look out for that one, listener. We might be having a go at that one. We might do. Yes. Yeah, so, be, the, why is this book such a cult classic? Lots of reasons, I think. One is its style, is that it does have that, it, it establishes a template that I think that people like Fleming take forward. I think certainly Forsyth, Frederick Forsyth, Dare the Jackal, mm-hmm. gets something from this book about sort of specificity and paranoia and some kind of tedious English male interest in detail. Yeah, but I think there's a fourth thing, right, which is the resourcefulness of the main character. Yes. Is the whole point. Like the jackal. Yeah, the The whole narrative turns on the resourcefulness of the main character because he's operating in a world in which... It's almost like it goes back to the scout movement, right? It's all yeah. that kind of like an independent Englishman should always be able to look after himself in any situation. That's right. Um, um, so Bond is an example Bond of is that. the ultimate example. The jackal is something you like that. You can't kill him. You yeah. can't slow him down. In this case, you can't even find him. And for, for younger listeners to this podcast, of which there are none, <laughs> Born, of course. Radio Times Pick of the Week, I think you'll find. Radio Times has a wide-ranging really? uh, sub-25 readership. Does it really? Yeah, indeed. Jason Bourne, I'm saying. Uh, Jason Bourne, exactly, yeah. I think that's the reason why it survived and stays in print and is often referred to by the writers. The other side of it, it has some rather gorgeous nature writing. It does. It, he's deeply in love with the landscape. I mean, he's good about London, generally, getting around London, but he's particularly good about the landscape of Dorset. Oh, I think it might be raining. Oh, perfect. You can tell how well sheltered we are because you can hear the rain, but it's completely dry in here. How lovely. Can you um, hear that, listener? Can you hear that? It's not coming through our canopy. That's how well sheltered we are. There was a film made of it in the 40s. There was. Not very successful, I gather. I haven't seen it. No. But um, the, but the it's one. Been one Americanized, but the one that uh, 
well, the one you found on YouTube and we both watched yes. was the BBC adaptation from 1976, directed by Clive Donner. Yes. Written by Frederick Raphael. And uh, it's starring, memorably, well, Peter O'Toole as the protagonist. Yeah. Uh, Alistair Sim as a new character, his uncle. Who's a member of the cabinet, of the knows cabinet. Neville Chamberlain and he, very well. And he meets in a sauna. A Turkish uh, bath. What have you been up to? Well, right? I wonder whether that's the same Turkish bath that Harry Palmer goes to in the Ipcrest file. Could be, could be. Actually, famously also, his... His the, lawyer. His lawyer is played by... Saul, Saul Abrahams. Saul Abrahams, played by... Played by Harold Pinter. Harold Pinter. And it's brilliant. It's such a good scene, that scene between O'Toole and Pinter. They're both kind of trying to act each other off the screen. It's yeah. very, very good. Yeah. Anyway, I found, brilliantly... People of a certain vintage will still remember and celebrate Nancy Banks Smith, who was the television critic in The Guardian oh, for gosh, decades. She was great. I met her once. Did you? Yeah. yeah she was lovely. Oh, yeah. I sat opposite her for a while when I was doing a shift at The Guardian. Rogue Man is a very glamorous job indeed. Not particularly faithful, but I dare say the glamorous often aren't, yet are forgiven. It is Geoffrey Household's 1939 thriller about an unnamed English gentleman who tries to shoot an unnamed head of state and is in turn hunted until cornered he turns on his pursuers. Geoffrey Household's only complaint was in the film the guns were too close together and pheasants were falling all over the place. <laughs> I feel a well-bred gentleman would also have accused Frederick Raphael and Peter O'Toole of bad behaviour in the butts. I don't know what she means <laughs> what by that. What does he mean? What does she mean by that? Raphael, who wrote the screenplay, evidently couldn't take the book altogether seriously. I don't think that's right. And has produced a far wittier, showier, showier show-off script. Where the book, this is good, where the book has beer and cold fowl, he has gulls, eggs and champagne. He has given the hunter a knighthood, a name, hunter, a school, Eton, a bootmaker, a gunmaker, quotations from Byron, an uncle who apparently lives in a Turkish bath, <laughs> and a very mannered manner indeed. There you go. Yes, well, that's very good. My biggest problem with that film is Peter O'Toole's hair. Yes, you said straight away that his hair was too long. He'd be on haircut report if he was at the No, <laughs> you can't. You can't go wandering around like that as a gentleman, <laughs> especially not in the 1930s. Oh my God! A large part of your brain is still at school, isn't it? <laughs> haircut report. But he does have very long hair and very special hair. But he, he obviously refused he to say, cut his hair. O'Toole said later on it was his favourite thing he'd ever done. The right of that is apparently. I heard from some that there's a memoir from one of the crew on that film that said that he spent quite a lot of time in his caravan with Jeffrey Household getting completely slammed. Yeah. Came out in '76, so he, he was he was 76 years old when they were making it. Yeah, good getting on him. Wrecked with Peter O'Toole. Fair yeah. play, sir. Well Fair play. played, sir. So where are we going next? Well, we're we're going to the land of Harold Pinter. We're going <laughs> we're going to the lawyer's office, which is said to be on Lincoln's Inn. But which side of Lincoln's, Lincoln's in Fields? Lincoln's in Fields. Yeah, yeah. So which side of it is it on, though? Yeah. Is, have we finally found him out? Have we, have we finally found something about this story that's topographically wrong? Yeah, possibly. Or, or not. possibly not. Anybody taking an interest in us, Peel? <laughs> there is a person in the gardens between Remnant Street and here feeding the birds. He is not very successful with them, sir. Peel permitted himself a dry chuckle, in spite of the fact that he has been there for the past week during office hours. And I understand from Proust and Fothergill that there are two other persons in Newman's Row. One of them is waiting for a lady to come out of their offices, a matrimonial case, I believe. The other is not known to us. 
and was observed to be in communication with the pigeon man, sir, as soon as this gentleman emerged from his taxi. Saul thanked him and sent him out to fetch us some beer and a cold bird. We're sitting in uh, Lincoln's Inn Fields. Yes. It's a sunny Friday lunchtime. Lots of people are having uh, their lunch, sandwich lunches. Some annoying young men playing football, as there always are in these spaces. So we're sitting almost exactly in between Remnant Street, which runs off the corner, the northeast corner of Lincoln's Inn Fields into Kingsway, and Newman Row, which is in the north... No, the north... Remnant Street is the northwest corner. This is the northeast corner, which runs into Holborn. Yes. So we're sitting halfway through, and we're sort of in front of the, the if you know it, the John Soane Museum, which is on the north side of Lincoln's Inn Fields. Yes. So we think so this, we're thinking we think he's this in is the... quite good, right, for his office. Yes. There's lawyers of Saul's office being on the north side. There are lots of, of lawyers Lincoln's around. Lots that's of lawyers. For sure. Yeah, because Lincoln's Inn obviously is one of the inns of court, of yeah. which there are four, I believe, in London, which is where lawyers were trained up from the Middle Ages onwards. You know, when we were sitting in Russell Square, and I said to you, for that was for um, Rivers of London. Yeah. And I said to you, oh, that's the second largest square in London. Yeah. But nobody, it doesn't tell you who the, what the largest one is. Well, this is supposedly the largest one, This right? is the largest one. Yeah. Yeah. They and trained uh, Cromwell's what, troops here. Well, even during better. During the Civil War. Even better. They executed a, a Duke of Bedford here. <laughs> we we for, don't like the Dukes of Bedford, We don't do like we? it for, for draining the fens. Draining the fens, redeveloping the whole of London to their yeah. own benefit in Covent Garden. Covent Garden, yeah. Now, locating the exact... He's come to see his solicitor to get his affairs in order. Yeah, he's come from uh, Cromwell Road. Yeah. Taking the Piccadilly line to Holborn. Yes. He's come up into the square and it turns out there are people looking for him. Now, I thought initially that he might be going to Farrer's, which is a very posh lawyer. If you're, if you're of that sort, and he is quite posh, this guy, yep. isn't he? He's, a, he's an old, ancient family. Yeah. That I thought he'd be going to Farrer's, which is Newcastle House, which is right by Remnant Street, which is on the uh, the west side. Because that's the, the Queen's lawyer. It's the Queen's lawyer, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but because he says it's between the implications is it's between Newman Row and and Gate Street, Remnant Street. Sorry, we'll come on to Gate Street in a bit. Remnant Street. Yeah, it must be on the north side. Yes, that's right. So it says here, Peel couldn't tell us whether another watcher had been posted in Newman's Row or whether the other exits from Lincoln's Inn Fields were watched. I was certain. They were. So I think that probably is right. Now, there is another lawyer's firm that used to be in that block. From 1750 to 1992, the solicitors Freer Chumley Chumley. were in premises on the north side of Lincoln's Inn Field. So he might well have been going to Freer Chumley. Freer Chumley. Now, uh, after he's been to see Saul, of course, he has to get out of the square... Saul says we could take you out through Lincoln's Inn itself, which is off to the east side of the square. Yes. The implication there is it's a private bit that you couldn't, they, they couldn't be followed. No, but you can actually just walk through it now. Yeah. It's, it's a bit of a weird one. This. What is he, he says, perhaps I should have trusted them, but I felt that while their tricks might be good enough to lose a single private detective, I shouldn't be allowed to escape so easily. I decided to throw off the hunt in my own way. Well... He does do that in his own way, which we'll come to. But when he comes out of the office, he says he walks into the park. Which says Peel, Peel, the clerk, walked with me across the square and into Kingsway by Gate Street. Yeah, so I'm a bit worried about this bit, right? There's no reason why he wouldn't just walk straight down Remnant Street. No. If he knows he's going to get followed. So he gets followed out of the park and into Holborn Tube Station. 
Yep. So rather excitingly, oh, you're we're going, going to reenact the chase scene in, yeah, the, in yeah. Holborn Station. And see if he's got it right, eh? See if he's got it right. You've got your little 3D map I've got map my 3D out, map to Holborn Station. Yeah. <laughs> we're good to go. So the, yeah, the guy who was following us has just walked ahead Moses, of us. But that's what you do. No, you that's follow, what you do. You're following someone. That's right. The bird man had got ahead of me. <laughs> I passed him on the level of the central London. Okay, so we're going I into went down down the escalator. We're going into the, the going into the tube now. Yeah. Welcome to Holland Station. For your safety and security, CCTV is in use throughout London Underground. To help us to keep your journey running safely and smoothly, keep all your belongings with you at all times, and if you see something that doesn't look right, speak to staff or text British Transport Police on 61016. Look sorted. See it. Say it. Sort it. So if you were being chased by somebody, you would just call the British Transport Police. You'd never get, yeah, you'd never get away with it. Right, OK. So what are we doing at the bottom of the escalator? So we're basically, it went down the escalator. Ten seconds after I reached the platform, Major Quive Smith also appeared on... Which platform does it go to? Westbound. The westbound, which, which line? So he turns right to the Piccadilly line. So there's another set of escalators to go down. I think these may have been stairs, though. Back in the day, this bit. No, it says escalator. Okay. Okay, so we're nearly at the westbound platform. This is very exciting. Please take care of the escalators. Stand on the right, walk on the left, hold on to the handrail, and please do not rush. Ensure you hold on to all of your buildings at all times. So we're walking down the westbound platform. We're going out the exit. Stairs. There's stairs. Perfect. Yeah. Up the stairs. Up the stairs. Oh. Making us very unpopular here because we're going the we're going the wrong way. That's quite a long corridor. Yes, there's quite a lot of space between the platforms, isn't there? I'll tell you why in a minute. Okay. So. And more steps. This should be the eastbound platform up here. This is a bit that excites me. So, behind these doors, these black doors, on platform, the eastbound platform four of the uh, uh, of the Holborn Station is platform five, which you no longer can get to, and that is the other side of it. So, this platform is actually part of an island. That's one side of which is closed off. If you could go through those doors and um, up some stairs, you'd end up at the shuttle Piccadilly shuttle extension. That goes down to Aldwych Station, which has now been closed. So, so you could have seen it from here. Yes, it says I noticed that the double train at the Aldwych left the opposite side of the same platform. Yeah. This offered a way of escape if ever there were two trains in at the same time. The working of the Aldwych station is very simple. Just before the shuttle is due, the lift comes down. The departing passengers get into the train, the arriving passengers get into the lift. When the lift goes up and the train leaves, Aldwych station is as deserted as an ancient mine. You can hear the drip of water and the beat of your heart. 
I can still hear them, and the sound of steps, and his scream, and the hideous, because domestic, sound of sizzling. Ooh. They echoed along that tunnel, which leads Lord knows where, a queer place for a soul to find itself adrift. Spooky. Right beneath our feet, Tim. Well, uh, there's a man being killed. Yeah, you're looking. You're looking at me in a funny way now. <laughs> I'm not going. So he's got. It's quite an interesting section, isn't it? Because he's yeah. got on the shuttle from uh, Holborn. Yeah. He's travelled maybe half an hour, mile underground, under Kingsway, to Aldwych Station, which is now closed. Closed yeah. in the 1990s for the last time. It's actually called Strand Station on the outside. So it was built. Quite an interesting story, a bit complicated, won't go into too, too much detail. But essentially there were two, there were proposals for two Piccadilly lines, essentially, because they were talking about building a, a, a line north from Temple all the way up to King's Cross right. to take some of the load off the Piccadilly line that was coming out from Piccadilly. And in the end, the, the projects were merged. Um, and this was a hangover from the original alternative Piccadilly line. Okay. So they had built it. Where would it have gone to next? Would it have gone down to Waterloo? Down to Temple. Temple, right, okay. And then there was talk about possibly it going on into South London. Yeah. So it ended up being this kind of rather sad shuttle running from Holborn to Strand and then Aldwych backwards and forwards, about half a mile under Kingsway. Not very popular, right? I mean, they sold it as a theatre-going line. If you were coming down from King's Cross, for instance, you could get off at Holborn change onto this come to the Aldwych station then you'd be at the end of the Strand where all the theatres are yeah but it, it was never very successful uh, and they end up closing it in the 90s because it was going to cost hundreds of thousands of pounds to update the lifts and it wasn't considered to be worth it but you can still go down there and I have been down there you have I have I mean, you can go on a, you can go on a tour of uh, the station it's and quite it's preserved. expensive it's like 40 quid a person my brother bought it for me for my birthday he knows you well. He does. And uh, we had a great time. And it's like, it's preserved the whole kind of 1910 wood panelling. Ticket office is still there. Old school lift is still there. You can't use it. You have to go down the stairs. And they use it for a lot a lot of it for filming. A lot of filming is done down there. Mm. If you've seen a film with the an underground station in it, it's, nearly always it's that quite one, right? likely to have been in there. American World for London was filmed down there. 28 weeks later, lots of films. I tried to get us down there, but... Um, they're filming today something in there, so oh, okay. we, we weren't allowed in. So we weren't allowed in. A um, couple of chances. I right. noticed he did say because he, he also talks about the guy the, the the tickets were sold in the lift. He talks about yeah. the, the ticket uh, person being in the lift. Yeah. So that happened in tw- 1922. They closed down the ticket office, yeah. and you had to buy a ticket in the lift. Yeah. So he's thought about this quite carefully he about the, as a, lo- a good location because there are these moments when it's empty. Yeah. That when people have got in the lift and the lift's gone up. If you but, stay the, but, behind. The other, but, but then that bit about the station com- is completely silent yes. when the lift's gone back up. Yes. Now I just wonder whether this whole section, all the way from the solicitors to here, yeah. is around the fact that that station is empty once yes. the train's gone, so you can kill someone in it. Yes. He's like he's worked back from there, and the whole set. The oh, whole thing's about that. yeah, we were saying, weren't we? we? Were saying, oh, which came first, the lawyer or the tube station? Yeah, but now so you're saying, oh, maybe it started. Uh, the murder in Oldwich was what he was looking for. Or maybe was, there was a day he took he took the train to here and missed the lift or something, and he's left down there and going, "Wow, this would be an amazing place to kill somebody." Yeah, I tell you <coughs> what, it's a really stupid place 
is uh, to to build a a bunch of uh, recording studios directly yeah. over it. So Bush House. We're sitting by Bush House. I've recorded a radio play there. Oh well, indeed. And, and I pointed um, out there was no I don't block. remember. And obviously, it would be a really bad idea if you had to stop every twenty minutes because of the rumble of the train underneath. Yeah. I think it's a bit crazy, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is a bit strange, isn't it? So now we've committed a murder. We committed a murder. Now, we we're in, to, now we're in real trouble. We need to get out of town. Now we're in real trouble. We've not got rid of all the pursuers. The pursuers are still pursuing us. We've killed one of them. Yeah. The body will be found. It certainly will. Uh, the police and will become involved. They'll be looking for. They'll be looking for a murderer. Yeah. So now we've got the Germans looking for us, the spies looking for us, and the British and the London police looking for all us. All looking for us. Good time to get out of Dodge, right? I think we've got to leave town yeah. and find a safe place in yeah. the countryside. So should we do that in the next episode? Sound <laughs> something sizzling on the tracks. Yes. So we're uh, we're going to leave London behind. Well, we have. Two. We're sitting in our well, little borough. We've, we've left London behind. So you're not far away, listener from the big reveal as to where we are you're even closer if you're a subscriber to our Patreon page because you can start listening to that right away otherwise you're going to have to wait a week yes just go to patreon.com search for Curiously Specific and pay us £2 and you can have the second part of this adventure which is based mainly in Dorset yeah we're going to talk bicycles we're going to guns guns we're going to talk about we're going to talk about Naughty's Raves yeah, we, we've got an interesting sidebar into a rave controversy. Yeah, uh, at a location from the book, no yeah. less. And then um, we're going to take issue with Robert McFarlane. We are going to take issue with Robert McFarlane, politely and respectfully, but we are taking issue with him. So more of that in the next episode. See you on the other side. Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 